13, verses 18 through 30 this morning. And, and we're going on this journey. Uh, if you are here last week, uh, we began this journey, this intimate teaching of Jesus uh, that he has with his inner 12, his disciples. And uh, this is famously called the Upper Room Discourse. And we're going to be taking this amazing journey up until Good Friday and up until Easter. And that's really fitting um, because this is a teaching that Jesus gave um, what is known as on the night that he was betrayed. So he gives this teaching around a table to his disciples, and then uh, the next day he goes to a cross, and then days later he rises uh, from the dead. And so um, this morning, though, we get an opportunity to look at the passage that brings greater definition, that really highlights this phrase, on the night that he was betrayed, which is a phrase, if you've been around Christianity at all, you've heard this before. And so uh, we're going to see this in John 13, starting in verse 18. And, and let's do this. Let's all stand together as I read this. Uh, over us. So John 13, verse 18. That's what God's word said. It says, I am not speaking of all of you. This is Jesus talking. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, referring to his father. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had, been the, had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. Uh, this scene is quite somber, isn't it? This isn't like a cheery scene. Um, I actually titled this sermon, And It Was Night, which is the final phrase that you see there in this passage. And, and you just got to admit, if you're going to a movie that was titled And It Was Night, you're going to expect a certain type of film, right? You wouldn't expect to walk into some sort of fluffy movie or some comedy probably of some sort, right? You'd expect something a bit more serious and somber, and that's exactly what we find here in this passage, I mean, geez, I mean, just, just look at who the, one of the main characters of the story is. It's Judas. I mean, Judas is like one of those names, isn't it? I mean, if you're having a child and you know that it's going to be a boy within the next year, I doubt that the name Judas is on like your top 10 list of potential names that you're going to draw from to name your child, right? I bet he's not even on your top 500 names, right? I mean, who knows? I mean, do you know anybody named Judas, really? I mean, we don't really meet people named Judas. I mean, there was a band once, I think, named Judas Priest or something, but they were, like, not very good, right? I mean, they weren't even, 
a good band, right? We just don't name people Judas, right? It's kind of one of those names, it's like an anathema. You know, it'll just forever go down in, in history. It's one of those infamous names that you kind of just like throw into this pile, this heap of other infamous, infamous names like, like Hitler or something. You just don't, you don't like these names, right? They might have been good names at one point, like Judas was probably a good name, but now it's like tarnished. And it said, I mean, you even read the gospel accounts, you see there was actually another disciple named Judas. And I'm, I'm being honest, I just kind of feel bad for him, right? I mean, forever, like that name is sort of a tarnished name. Well, why? Well, because in the person of Judas, I mean, we encounter the worst case of betrayal that the world has ever seen. I mean, we find backstabbing in Judas. And so that name forever, like, identifies with that. You see, in, in the Greek word to betray, like literally in Greek, this word to betray means to get somebody off your hands. It's to remove someone's power over you. It's just to say, I'm, I'm done with you. I want nothing to do with you. you. I don't want you to have any power over me anymore. That's what it means to, to betray someone. And, and honestly, this speaks to the essence of what sin is. Judas rejected Jesus' authority and so he seeks to rid himself of Jesus. He betrays him. And so, so here's what I actually want to do uh, this morning. I'll be honest with you. As I, as I began studying this passage this week, I became very quickly aware of how I've sort of tossed Judas into that heap of names, into this pile uh, that's sort of this great anomaly in world history. And yes, he was a unique figure in history, but he, I often think of him as one of those really awful types of people that we cannot, can't really relate to. It's kind of how I felt, and um, but I, get, I began to see really um, that that I can identify him with, identify with him way more than I than I thought I could. Beforehand, he, he really is. He seems to be one of those people that we kind of look at in history, and we say, "Well, I'm no I'm no saint, but at least I'm not Judas." And I want us to do is I want us to see this morning that frighteningly, we are much more like Judas than we might actually realize. Uh, when I was in third grade, my teacher uh, noticed that my eyes were beginning to squint a lot more when I looked at the chalkboard. Yes, I said chalkboard, okay? We didn't have whiteboards even then. This was before internet, if you believe it, right? Um, I, I thought my eyes were fine. I really did. I thought my eyes were just fine, but my, my parents eventually took me to the eye doctor, and it wasn't until the eye doctor scooted way too close in his little scooting chair and put that contraption in front of my face, you know, the ones where they, they move the lenses back and forth uh, to see what sort of lens is best for your eyes. It wasn't until that contraption was put in front of my face that I really, you know, came to and was like, whoa, I'm really missing out on a lot of my life. My eyes are, are bad. I didn't realize how bad my eyes were until that thing was placed in front of my eyes. And I, I think the person of Judas this morning is kind of like that, that massive eye contraption thing. It helps us to see more clearly where the state of our heart is really at. And so what I want to do is I want to sit in the life of Judas a bit this morning, sort of a case study, if you will, and to see two warning signs from his life that might show us that we're on the path of Judas. I want us to see two results that come from being on his path and, and finally the, the sovereign grace of God that he offers you this morning to get off that path. So first, the two warning signs that you're on Jesus' path. And I want to do something a little bit different here because I want to look at two brief snapshots 
two different scenes of Judas's life before this moment that kind of show you the trajectory that got him to this place. And you'll see that, that these places are going to be John chapter 12, 3 through 6, and Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Uh, but first, um, uh, this quote, C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. His predecessor in influence and thought, George MacDonald, said 50 years before Lewis, he said, a man may sink much by, by such slow degrees that long after he is a devil, he may go on thinking himself a good Christian. See, when we look at the life of Judas, we really see his slow and steady demise towards this fate. He didn't just like betray Jesus overnight. It's really important that we realize that. These slow and steady downward slopes are slopes that you and I can often find just ourselves on as well. We might not think that what we're on is, the, is that dangerous of a path, but I think in the life of Judas, you begin to see like where this might lead for us. They're slow and steady enough to where we don't even see the warning sides that lead to this ultimate betrayal and really to our demise, to our destruction. And so the first thing, the first sort of snapshot of Judas's life I want us to look at is in John chapter 12. If you flip to your left in your Bible, just one page, you'll be there. Starting in verse 3, we see this, that one of the first things that we see about Judas is that he actually thought it was possible to give too much to Jesus. He thought it was possible to give too much to Jesus. In verse 3 of chapter 12, it says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So Judas, right away, he was someone we see in a passage like this who believed that too much could be given to Jesus. That you could actually give too much to him. That there was sort of a limit to how worthy Jesus is. Okay? And so here in this story, he, he believed Jesus was too, that too much could be given to Jesus and that we should actually keep some things for ourselves. This is what sin does to us, guys. It withholds from God what is not ours to keep. This is Judas's great sin. It's, it's a withholding of himself from Jesus. It's keeping back from God what was not his to keep. He was literally stealing from Jesus in the process, and he actually tried to cloak his evil in ministry. You saw that little description in that verse, right? It said, he, he said, well, why we could be giving this to the poor, and it says, well, actually, he was saying that because he wanted to, to keep it. Yeah, I mean, Judas, somewhere along the way, he actually came to the point where he believed that Jesus was just not probably for him. And at some point, he believed the lie that the money coming in for the ministry of Jesus was probably more his to keep. And so he looks at this beautiful act of Mary, and he wants that money. And I just want us to ask this morning, is there something in your life that you are withholding from Jesus? a place where you're kind of holding back. So I think we can believe 
the great lie that what is mine is mine and whatever I have left over, well, then I'll give that to God. And God says, no, everything that you have is mine. You received it from me. And Judas, he didn't really get this. He didn't like this. He didn't like that Jesus said, I will be your all in all or I will be nothing at all. He thought there was too much that you could give to Christ. And, and honestly, just to be honest with you, I, I see this often at times in my own life, but in other comfy Christians' lives. We kind of get freaked out by other Christians who are really more so just, we look at them and we think, oh man, they're really wholly surrendered to Jesus and they're following him in these radical ways. And, and there's a lot of Christians that, and I've been in this spot in my life too, where, where we sort of act afraid of more zealous Christians. And we, we look at them and, and we more so think of our own lives. We think, hey, I just kind of want to fit into society. You know, I, I don't want to be an anathema to the culture that I'm around. I want to be able to hang in there with, with someone who's not a Christian. I don't want them to think that I'm all different from them in any sort of way. I want to I preach the gospel, you know, without preaching the gospel, you know. But no, this is withholding. There's, there should never be anything that's withheld from Christ. There isn't too much that we can give to him. I'm not telling you to go out and be an obnoxious person, but I'm asking us to really check our hearts this morning because this is what we see on this slow and steady slope of the life of Judas. I mean, do you believe that you can actually give too much to Jesus? Do you believe that? If so, you might be on this slow and steady slope of Judas. Secondly, oh, we see in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, that Judas thought that the world had more to offer than Jesus. Look in, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, this is the scene right before this one, he went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas, he goes to the chief priests and he says, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus, if I deliver him to you? He's going somewhere else other than Jesus, thinking there's other things in this world that have more to offer than Jesus. I mean, Judas had become disenchanted with the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, and he became so disenchanted and therefore overwhelmed with greed that he went behind Jesus' back and says, what will you give to me if I give him to you? I mean, he had been near Jesus long enough. He'd been around him so long, yet to some degree he felt like the world had more to offer him than Jesus had to offer him. I mean, this is a guy, guys, you have to realize, this is a guy who saw Jesus do all these miracles, and yet he was unmoved by Jesus. He saw Jesus walk in just utter humility. He heard the perfect speech and perfect thought and, and gloriously perfect actions of Jesus, and yet he was completely unmoved. I mean, if anything, there is something in Judas that just doesn't like what Jesus is doing or what Jesus is saying or what Jesus is about. He must have misunderstood Jesus along the way because Jesus shows him an upside-down kingdom, and it was a kingdom that Judas didn't want. You see, Judas's heart believed the world had what he wanted and not Jesus. And, and I, I watch people walk away from Jesus all the time who've become disenchanted with Jesus 
because they kind of view Jesus as sort of like a cosmic Santa Claus of sorts who's there to fulfill their every wish or dream or to give them the feelings or life that they're after. They have a false perception of Jesus, and, and so he doesn't really fulfill their demands, and so they walk away. And we say to the world, what will you give me? What will you give me? I will betray Jesus. I will rid myself of Jesus if what you will give to me is better than what he's offering to me. And sometimes we, in essence, then turn to the pleasures of this world and we make them supreme in our lives. And so we therefore realize that we've come to Christ with the wrong intentions. We've come to Christ with the wrong desires. And we say to him, at some point in our lives, yes, I will follow you, Jesus, if you give me a husband or if you give me a wife or if you give me a great job or if you give me Give me, give me. And Jesus says, I will give you my life, but you have to lay down yours. That's the Jesus of Scripture. See, Jesus is not Santa. He's not a genie. He's not a vending machine. And there is nowhere in Scripture that says he will fulfill your every dream that you've ever had. And if the Jesus of Scripture did promise you that, let me tell you, I would not be standing before you this morning. I mean, God had to show me that all my dreams that I thought were real dreams were really lies until by his grace I discovered Jesus and allowed him to redefine me and himself and rediscover that my true dreams were really him all along. See, Jesus wants Judas and he wants us to see that he is our sole satisfaction but we, we don't know why Jesus betrayed or Judas betrayed Jesus, but we do know that at some level he became disenchanted with Jesus because Judas turned to the world. And, and let's just be honest this morning. There are many of you who are turning to the world because you just aren't satisfied with Jesus and what, he's, what he has to offer you. Because you, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't get it. And I want you, I want you to get it. I want you to get the gospel because the lies of the world will destroy you and they'll put you on the path that Judas is on. You see, both of these warning signs, they distance Judas from Jesus. These warning signs, if, if they're warning signs in our lives, what they do is they distance Jesus from our hearts. When we, when we begin to think that Jesus can deserve too much, we withhold from him and we pull back. When we think that something or someone else has more to offer than Jesus, we withhold and we pull back. And then the moment comes, right? The, the, the moment comes where we will betray. Where eventually we say, I'm going to go after this thing now. I want to rid myself of Jesus because we've been setting ourselves up for it all along. Jesus is kind of like a temporary security blanket until something else that seems better comes along. And guys, all of this boils down to not actually receiving Jesus at any point thinking that you have. Because here in verse 20, Jesus says, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. See guys, Judas never received Jesus. He may have been around Jesus, but he stiff-armed Jesus. He never received Jesus because his heart received temporary satisfaction from the world. He never received Jesus because his own ego and his own pursuits, his own self, he himself, he was on the throne of his own life. Because to receive Jesus, you guys, is to actually step off that throne. 
It's to see that what Jesus offers is better than the world, and Judas never did that. And it got him into a very difficult spot. He wound up in a difficult place. And so there's these two results that we see in verses 22 through 30 of our passage. We see these two results of what happens if you're on Judas's path eventually. The first thing you see is that Judas wound up fooling everybody, including himself. He wound up fooling everybody, including himself. Notice what's happening with the characters in the story. Jesus looks at them, looks at them all, his inner 12, and he says in verse 21, one of you will betray me. And what's their response? It's bewilderment, right? They begin to wonder. In verse 22, it says they looked at one another, uncertain of who he spoke. In verse 25, John, who's the writer of this gospel, asked Jesus, who is it? They have no idea, no suspicion. Isn't that amazing to see? And think about this. They have, they have no clue. I mean, Jesus even says, guys, let me just cue you in. I'm going to dip the bread. I'm going to hand it to somebody. Who I hand it to is the one who's going to betray me. And he does that, and still, still, they don't get it. They don't get it. He hands it to Judas. He says, go and do it quickly. They're so dense. They actually think Judas is going out to help the poor or something, it says. Right? In verse 29, do you see that? He fooled them. He faked it so well. See, what this reveals is that Judas has fooled everyone. They aren't even suspicious that the betrayer would be Judas. I mean, I would like to think that if Jesus said someone's going to betray me, they're like, well, I know who it's going to be. I mean, see the way Judas always acts? He's kind of a greedy guy. But that's not. They're just so fooled by him. He faked it, and he faked it so well. I mean, just think about this. This is terrifying in a sense. Judas did everything that the other 11 did. Right? He was sent out by Jesus into the world. They went on like mission trips together. I mean, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He like cast out demons and stuff. He looked the part and he fooled everyone, but he also fooled himself. Because we're told in another gospel account, around this same table, we're told about another dialogue that Judas has with Jesus in this exact same moment. And Judas, after he hears Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, Judas even asks Jesus himself if it's him. It says this in, in the Matthew, uh, gospel, gospel of Matthew, it says, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have said so. So in the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that to some degree, Judas even fooled himself. I thought, maybe it's not me, maybe it's somebody else. You see, the thing is, is that we can set out on a slow and steady downward spiral like Judas, and we can have these deep, hidden, secret sins, and we can get to the place where we are near utter destruction in our lives, and yet we could have fooled every single person around us, and we could even have fooled even ourselves, but we cannot fool Jesus, because Jesus knows. Honestly, you might be like Judas this morning, and if you're being real, you have these like deep, hidden, secret sins, right? And you're trying to project this like genuine faith from your life, but you're really just pretending and it's eating you up inside. Might just be eating you up. You might be faking it. But, but I want you to know and see and believe that Jesus isn't ever calling you to fake it. He wants you to stop trying to fool others and fool yourself. And no matter how much you crave the approval of those people that you're trying to fake it for, he wants you 
to come to a place where you're just beginning to be honest about where your heart's at. Because he knows you completely. Jesus knows you completely inside and out, and yet he loves you. And he desires to restore you and to give you hope today. I mean, some of the most powerful stories that I've heard over the last five years, especially before um, we go to baptize somebody, they're always, to me, they're always the stories where people share about how they've been growing up in their whole life and they were surrounded by Christians their entire life, but they were just faking it. They were just faking it. They were trying to project that they believed the same thing just to sort of fit in. And so they had all this knowledge of the Bible and they even knew all the Christian jargon or something like that. But finally, one day they woke up and said, I'm tired of faking it. But I want the Jesus of the scripture. And they were dying inside, but God woke them up and they actually received the grace of Jesus and they came clean and they stopped pretending. Those are my favorite stories because in my view, the worst thing that we could ever do as a church is have a bunch of us enter into these kind of places on a Sunday and we're all just kind of faking it. It's like the worst thing we could do. But when we receive the grace of Jesus as a community of faith, we began to realize that if we can receive the grace from Jesus and begin to extend it to other people, then we can all stop pretending. We can all exercise a sort of genuine faith. You see, you have to stop pretending if you're truly going to receive Jesus and receive the life that you were made for, this life in the vine. And once you stop pretending, you can truly start living. The path of Judas results in fooling everyone and even yourself for a time, but you can't fool Jesus and eventually it leads to someplace worse. And that's the second thing you see here is that God eventually will give you over to what you want. Jesus says to, to Judas, when he hands him the bread, he says, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Jesus says to him, just do it. He gives him over to what he wants to do. What he set out in his heart to do, Jesus gives him over to it. Guys, one of the saddest things that God can ever do to us is to give us over to what we want when what we want is not him. You see, the, the wrath of God, when the Bible talks about the wrath of God revealed in Scripture, places like Romans 1 other places, it's not, it's not ever describing God striking you dead with a bolt of lightning or the earth swallowing you up or just opening up and swallowing you up. The wrath of God, when it's revealed in Scripture, is when we continually make the wrong choice and choose ourselves as our own God again and again and again and again to where there is no longer any guilt in our lives. There's no longer any remorse. Our hearts have just grown so cold and hard like stone. The wrath of God is where we eventually get to the place where God just gives us over to that sort of desire and we fall ultimately and finally into the trappings of that sin. C.S. Lewis, he once gave the the image picture that hell is locked from the inside. And what he's getting at is that sort of idea that eventually God will just give you what you want in all of its fullness. And guys, that is not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Now, the other day I, I walked to our mailbox. It was late at night with my um, three-year-old son. Uh, and uh, he is honestly the most clumsy human being I've ever met in my entire life, okay? Um, this little dude severely injures himself like every day, all right? Um, I think the problem is he's always the 50th percentile of height and weight, but like 100th percentile for his head, okay? So he's <laughs> super top heavy, big old mug. 
up there. And we're walking back and we're holding hands and he really wanted to sprint towards the house and it was dark and I said, nobody, I'm not gonna let go of your hand because you're just gonna fall. That's what's gonna happen. I knew it, okay? But we get closer to the house and we get right to the end of our driveway and he wanted to run again and so I just gave him over to his desires. I did. And right away, I would, I'm not exaggerating, he got halfway through his first step and he just face planted, immediately started crying. I mean, it was amazing. I felt like Nostradamus or something, just completely predicted this thing. He got his desire. I gave him over to his desire and his desire got him, man. I mean, he just face planted. God will eventually give you over to what you want in all of its fullness. And that path of Judas results in no turning back eventually. It results in utter destruction, a huge eternal face plant. And that's where our text seems to end this morning. It ends with this phrase, and it was night. What a fitting phrase. Judas is given over to his desires. It says Satan himself enters him. Don't miss the darkness of this moment. And as he exits out from the presence of Jesus, he leaves the true light behind. And he enters out into the physical darkness of the night, but more so, Judas enters out into the dark night of his soul. But don't think that Jesus enjoys this, just even for a moment. Because what is his approach to this whole situation? Look at verse 21. It was to say, Jesus, before he announces someone is going to betray him, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He takes in this moment, he stares at the 12, he, he's staring literally sin in the face. He stares at evil itself and he's troubled in his spirit. This word in Greek literally means that Jesus is torn up inside. He hates it. Why? Well, because at the beginning of, of chapter 13, verse 1, it's, it's true. It says in verse 1 of chapter 13 that Jesus loved the 12. He loved them to the end, even Judas. There's no caveats in that verse, it says he loved his own to the end. And so this morning, we, we must see that although this passage ends with Judas running off into the night, the ultimate story doesn't end there. We're in the middle of it still. Because the love of Jesus wasn't defeated by the betrayal of Judas, but the betrayal of Judas was a doorway to express the love of Jesus. And because of that, there is this sovereign grace that God offers to you this morning to get off this path, to not continue down this slow and steady downward spiral that you might find yourself in this morning. We see this sovereign grace of God to get off this path in verses 18 through 21. Uh, you see in these verses, it's, it's, it's important to see that none of this evil surprised God. None of it, not at all. Somehow, in a mysterious way that our minds can't wrap around, this was part of God's sovereign plan. To be very clear, don't interpret the phrase God's sovereign plan as saying that God is the instigator of evil. That's not at all what that means. But what this means is that from long ago, before this event of betrayal ever took place, Jesus reveals here that scripture prophesied about this moment, and he says it must be fulfilled. In verse 18, he said, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then he continues, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And then he continued, and he said, one of you will betray me. 
Do you see? God knew this was coming. But, but not only did he know it was coming, God was graciously using this very real evil event to turn it into the greatest good that the world would ever see. The greatest evil betraying the Son of God would result in the murder of the Son of God, but the death of Jesus himself resulted in eternal hope and redemption for the world. See, God graciously took the betrayal of his son and he turned it into salvation that's being offered to you this morning. He he turned this moment, this moment of betrayal, the eternal son of God, he turned it into hope that's offered to you this morning to get off the path. The path of, of, of your own ego. The path of thinking that Jesus can actually receive too much from your life. The path of thinking that Jesus is holding out on you and there's something else that could be offered to you in this world that's going to satisfy you more than Jesus. To get off the path of faking it and thinking you have to project some image of yourself upon everybody else. He invites you off the path. The path that ultimately will lead to utter destruction of your life. And you'll feel like it just happened overnight, but if you were to trace your life, it's been a slow and steady downward spiral. See, I want you to see that this is where Judas and us can separate. It's not too late for any of us this morning. God hasn't given you over yet. If you have breath in your lungs, he desires you to see clearly, but he desires you to go to him You must go to him. You must not repent in the wrong direction or think something else will ultimately fix you. Because look at what Judas does after this moment. We see a window in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 through 5. It gives us a picture of what repentance in the wrong direction looks like. It says this, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. So this is after he's betrayed him. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. What a scene. It says he saw, he saw, he saw what he had done. He like came to. It's almost in a sense like Satan left him in that moment or something. He saw. And you almost kind of wonder what would have happened if he would have just run to Jesus in that moment. Because as long as there again, there's breath in our lungs, there's hope for our lives. But did he run to Jesus? No. He went back to the ones who are trying to destroy Jesus. He went back to the ones who gave him the money. See, Judas, he's repenting to the ones who came to destroy Jesus. He went the wrong direction. I've seen people broken by their own sin, okay? I've seen it. And they think that their brokenness, just feeling the brokenness is repentance, but they don't turn to God for healing. They just let themselves be filled with with grief and remorse, but they're not really doing anything with it. 
See, repentance, guys, it's not just feeling grief about your sin. Repentance is changing your mind about who is going to actually be God in your life. It's actually going to God. See, remorse and grief can actually be turned into things that bring even greater destruction upon your life. I mean, I've watched people be so grief-filled and filled with remorse that they've turned to like extreme alcohol abuse or even things like heroin or licentious sex with just whoever or false unhealthy relationships. I've seen people turn every direction in their life but to Jesus, but when we turn to Jesus, that begins to see repentance in the right direction. See, the world is not going to heal your broken heart, but Jesus will. Jesus is actually the only one who can. Do you see? You can get off the path this morning and receive Jesus And you could follow him and enter into the death of your own ego because Jesus entered into his death for you. Jesus willingly went to the death on a cross, his own life, and he endured it. And God used the greatest evil in life to bring about the greatest good. So that this morning we can hear of this grace and our eyes could be open to the ways that you and I betray Jesus, the ways that we try to actually rid ourselves of him so that we can repent, so that we can return to him, not to our despair, not to our grief, not to our shame, but that we could go to his grace. We could go to his arms of of love that are wide open for you this morning. Why? Because God turned the greatest evil into the greatest good so that you could get off the path of Judas this morning. There's hope. There's grace for you. See, I think we have a lot more in common with Judas than we might think. At least that's what I noticed in my life this week. But our lives do not have to end up like his. The reason is because Jesus holds out to you this morning the bread of forgiveness. The bread of forgiveness. And you can't experience this life in the vine if you don't truly come to Jesus and receive that bread. And so this is what I want to do this morning. Before we go into this time of response, this time of communion, if you're a Christian, to come to this table, I want you to come this morning. And I want you to realize that this table in front of you exists because of betrayal. That it was betrayal that presented this table before you this morning. And I want us to take just a a few moments of our lives, just maybe 30 seconds to a minute, just to sit quietly. And I want us just to ask Jesus and ask God to show us the ways that we've tried to rid him in different areas of our life. To ask God, are there ways that I'm betraying you? In different ways. Is there, is there things that I'm doing, these warning signs that are causing me to go on down this path that Judas was on? But then I want us to, to rise to our feet and to go into a time of response and to come to this table realizing that as I come to this table, Jesus is offering me. And I'm celebrating it week after week. He's offering me the bread of forgiveness. He's offering me open arms of acceptance especially when I come to him and and just as 
I am, that he's offering me this fullness of life and fullness of forgiveness as I come to a table like this. So let's pray.